Sir Isaac Newton, famous mathematician and scientist and everything that he did, said that he had a mechanical replica made of, a, of the solar system. It may have looked something like this. It was made in miniature, obviously. And uh, as the center was a, a golden ball representing the sun and different planets and had these different arms. Uh, so they would revolve around each other and it was, it was mechanized. And so there were different cogs and belts to make it move around and go in, in perfect harmony. And one day as Newton was there and he was studying this, uh, this model of the solar system, uh, an unbelieving friend came in and marveled at this, uh, this wonder that uh, was there with all the intricate parts moving around the, the, the uh, planets and their, their satellites. And this friend asked him, Newton, who, who made this for you? And Newton, without looking up, said, no one. And the guy said, no one? And Newton said, that's right. I said, nobody. All of these balls and cogs and belts and gears, they just happened to come together. And wonder by wonder, by chance, they uh, began revolving in their set orbits in perfect timing. And I think the friend uh, got the point that if something like this doesn't just happen by chance, uh, there's such intricacy in how everything is put together. Uh, if you were here last week in the message, we talked a lot about that, about God's uh, design and creation, both the, the magnificence of it, but so many things, and we're just scratching the surface, that point to the design of this world, the planet Earth. And at the end of the message, we talked about even some of the things from the laws of physics, that these certain uh, variables, let's say the force of gravity, and how it has to be so precisely tuned for life to even be possible anywhere in the universe. And that they've said that it is like having a radio dial stretching across the universe with one-inch increments, and if you moved the force of gravity, which could have been any of these variables, there's nothing that said it had to be one thing, but if you moved it one inch one way or the other, life is now impossible in the entire universe. And there are at least like 30 of these dials, these variables that have to be tuned just right, and some even more fine-tuning uh, than, than gravity. And without even being able to understand the science behind it or to analyze that, I think we can know that this is the real deal by the way that the atheists respond to it. The hardened atheists uh, will say, well, I, it, we wouldn't be around if... Uh, if we lived in one of the universes where life was impossible, so we shouldn't even be surprised. And the other way they try to explain it is that, well, you see, it could be that there is a, there is a multiverse, and there's an infinite number of universes out there, and each one has the dial at a different place, and we just happen to be in the one that's uh, just set just right. And I just want to say, if sometimes people make it out like, you know, believing in God is this, this big stretch, but if you believe... To that there are an infinite number of other universes and that's your way to explain it, all of a sudden believing in God doesn't seem like this big crazy stretch anymore, does it? So there's all these things with the design in the world. So we did, that's what we did last week. We stepped back to look at the grandeur of this and the design. This week we're going to go through the six days of creation as written in the book of Genesis and seeing what uh, does Genesis 1 teach us trying to better understand what the Bible teaches us about how this all took place. But I think even before we do that, we need to ask ourselves a question of what kind of writing is Genesis? And what kind of writing is, uh, is Genesis 1? How are we meant to understand this? So 
My first uh, point in this message I propose to you is that Genesis and Genesis 1 was not written as poetry or myth. It was written as a factual account. It was intended as a factual historical account, a narrative of what actually took place. And so just to make it clear, because there's different views that people have on this, uh, it is not poetry. If there are sections of the Bible that are poetry, and in the sections of the Bible that are poetry, they, they uh, communicate truth, but we know there's going to be a lot more metaphor, there's going to be a lot more uh, symbolism in the poetic sections of Scripture, and that's natural. That's a natural way to, to understand that type of literature. But if you read the uh, Genesis 1, uh, it is not written as Hebrew poetry. Hebrew poetry is written, there's a lot of telltale signs. I mean, in your uh, scripture, you'll see it, it's, it's formatted differently, but that's to reflect the, the case that the Hebrews, they didn't rhyme with sound, they rhymed with ideas. And so they would have like two lines usually, and oftentimes it would repeat uh, the same idea in different words. So that, those were some of the characteristics. They would also be uh, heavy in um, you know, symbolism and, and metaphor, and you don't see that in Genesis 1. And so this is not written as poetry. Uh, it's not meant to be merely metaphorical. The reason some people want to view it this is, oh, it's, it, it, is, it is lofty. Okay, we, we say that. This is a majestic passage. But don't just write it off and say, well, it's poetry, and so we don't have to understand this literally. Uh, it is written, it is basically written as a literal narrative. Now, I think one of the things we're going to see in order to interpret it, it is written uh, from the perspective of uh, a human observer with the language of human observation. And we're going to see that's going to help us to make sense of things. Uh, it's not written uh, f from a... Um, as if it's a modern-day science book or from somebody uh, out in space. It's written from uh, the language of everyday experience, uh, but it is written as a narrative, not as poetry. It is also not written as a myth, and it's not intended to be a myth. That's where there are some that say, well, these sections of Scripture uh, that sometimes they find hard to understand or hard to reconcile with um, modern worldviews or interpretations of science. Uh, they say, well, they get around that by saying, well, these parts of the Bible, these are mythological. And so we don't have to understand this as far as how this actually happened because this was just meant to be a myth. And so every religion has their mythological you know, creation stories, and, and this is one of those. And sometimes they'll point to... Uh, some documents that were discovered called the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation narrative. And I think it's important because sometimes you'll, uh, you know, kids that go up to college, they'll be, you know, taught this. You'll see it on PBS specials and nature things and uh, different ways that people will try to say, you have to realize that uh, the scripture is, uh, the Bible is basically doing the same thing as these, these pagan creation narratives. And look at all the similarities. And they'll say in this uh, book by the Babylonians that there is written on seven tablets. And here you have seven days that are in the book of Genesis. They'll point out that there seems to be a similarity in the order of events uh, that happen. Um, and so they'll point on the areas of similarity, uh, which I would say are, are surface level, and try to basically say that um, 
maybe the Bible copied from these Babylonian narratives, or that it's basically just done doing the, the same thing. In the Enuma Elish, it has the, the god Marduk fighting with the ocean god Tiamat and slaying her and cutting her in half, and then using half of her to form uh, the sky and half of her to form the earth. At that point, you say, that doesn't sound exactly like the book of Genesis here. Um, God does you know, separate, we're going to see this, uh, but not by cutting in half some, uh, some ancient you know, God in their wars. And so we realize, uh, yeah, Genesis is not written as a myth. It's not intended to be a myth. It's not written as a myth. There's no account here of the origin of the gods. Uh, there are no other gods. There's no warring of gods or goddesses. Uh, the heavens, uh, the earth, are not made out of a God. That's some, one thing we saw, that the creation is distinct from God, made by God, but not made out of him. There are no mythical beasts, uh, no deification of the stars, of the planets, the sun or the moon. In fact, the opposite. We're going to see that it's the sun and the, the moon. These are creation. They're not gods at all. And so a lot of scholars are recognizing that uh, this whole thing about this being a myth and drawn from the, the Babylonians, this has been overdone. And that you really can't uh, say that one is uh, drawn from the other. There, there are just uh, too many differences here. And that if there are any resemblances here or in like flood stories, well, if these things actually happened, there would be an ancient memory of this that would be passed down and corrupted from generation to generation. So it could be sourced in, in the truth of Revelation originally, uh, but then distorted by the other religions. Even more importantly, when we look at the rest of the scripture, it doesn't view Genesis as being mythological. Uh, the Old Testament, and let's say the New Testament. The New Testament and Jesus himself refers to this as things that actually happened. And we're going to see later on when we look at the historical Adam and Eve, we'll make a case for that. But even Matthew 19, verse 4, Jesus uh, says, He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And that's all the way back from Genesis 1. Uh, one scholar uh, lists that there are some uh, 71 New Testament references to the early chapters of Genesis. And concludes, among other things, that every New Testament writer refers to the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, um, that Jesus Christ himself referred to each of the first seven chapters of Genesis, that all of the New Testament books, except for just a handful, um, all reference Genesis 1 through 11, that every chapter of Genesis 1 through 11, except for chapter 8, is referenced somewhere in the New Testament. And so the New Testament writers, they acknowledged uh, even these early chapters in Genesis, uh, the ones that sometimes people are more embarrassed about, as being historically accurate in what actually happened. And I also want to say this. If your motivation is to say, well, let's... Uh, have a line somewhere in scripture where we say the stuff before this, this is mythological because we can't explain that or it doesn't seem to fit with you know, what is being taught in the world today. Where do you really stop that? I mean, there's a lot of times where people will stop that with uh, chapter 11 in Genesis uh, because 
they'll say, well, okay, you have the creation, and that doesn't seem to be like what we're, we're, we're taught. And then Noah's ark and the flood, well, that, that must be mythological. So maybe after that. I mean, where do you stop this? Is it just Genesis 1? Is it Genesis 1, 2, and 3? So Adam and Eve, that, that's kind of embarrassing. Noah's ark, you got up to Genesis 11. But you know what? There's plenty of other things in the Old Testament too that are hard to deal with or hard to explain. Uh, so where do you stop there? Where do you, what about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? I mean, that's not a, that's not a normal thing. So if you're going to start on the road of saying, well, the stuff that seems hard to explain that's mythological, I say there's no end point for that. And eventually you um, are taking uh, Scripture and making it to just a, a bunch of myth without any reality behind it. So it is not poetry. It is not myth. It is not a mere allegory. It should not be interpreted where everything is symbolic. One ancient Jewish, Jewish writer, Philo, uh, talking about the four rivers of Eden, uh, he explained those as representing, uh, he said the four rivers are the particular virtues. Uh, each, you know, coming out of, uh, the, he says the four rivers are the particular virtues. It fluxes of generic virtue, the river that issues from Eden, which is the wisdom or reason of God. So instead of the rivers being rivers, they're symbolic of, of, uh, symbolically of, of virtue that comes from God. That's not what Scripture is doing. It's presenting these things as having actually happened. And, and this is one we could spend a lot of time on because there's a lot of different views with this, but it's not a mere literary device either. And this is something that is uh, common even among a lot of uh, evangelical scholars too, to basically say there's, there's some kind of literary device that's going on here, and therefore it, it, Genesis is not, or at least these early chapters are not meant to be taken in a straightforward way or not meant to be taken as far as there's an actual chronology of events where things happen in order. Uh, so examples of that, some will say, well, it seems like uh, Genesis is written as a polemic. And that means that it's written as like, a, um, like an attack on the, the false gods of the, that were around in the different religions. And so uh, they'll say, well, it's, it's written to counter these false gods and say these are, these are not the true gods. And, that's, and there's a sense where there's truth in that. But if you say, well, because it is an attack on these false gods, that that's all it's saying, and so the details don't matter, that's where you get into trouble. It's not merely a literary device. And so there's different ones, too, that you run into. Uh, some that will say, well, it's a, it's a framework. And we're going to see when we look at this that there's something that there seems to be some parallels between the first three days and the second three days. There's some things that match up. Not perfectly, we'll see, but, you know, to a degree. And so some scholars say, well, that's all that's going here. It's, it's put in this framework as kind of a uh, literary, kind of artistic way, but it's not really meant to communicate that these things happen in this order. So again, I think there is some you know, framework here in a sense, but to say that that's merely what's happening, I think that goes too far. Or that it's an analogy to a work week, that this is like saying this is God's work week. Um, it is God's work week, but to say that that's all that's going on, again, I think that's going too far. And also, God's work week is not patterned after man's work week. What we're going to see is man's work week is patterned after God's work week that he sets forth, forth here in uh, Genesis 1. And it's also not just merely a, a cosmic temple um, 
there may be parallels or elements. Maybe you see it, maybe you don't. I, sometimes I think that's overdrawn. Uh, but again, even if it's some of these, they, they could be there, but why then say that that's all that's happening? I think instead, the, the way to read this and the way it's intended and understood by other scripture writers is that uh, we should read this, Genesis and Genesis 1, that it is a factual and historical account indicating a chronological sequence. When we see this, it talks about day one, day two, day three. I, th I think it's pretty tough for me to look at that and say it's not trying to communicate an order of events that's taking place. Um, one Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, writes, the march of days is too majestic a progress to carry no implication of ordered sequence. It also seems overly subtle to adopt a view of the passage which discounts one of the primary impressions it makes on the ordinary reader. Another writer, Cornelius Van Damme, in his book In the Beginning writes, it is difficult to imagine how a text could more strongly express chronological sequence than scripture does in its opening chapter. So, we'll let that suffice uh, for now. Um, if you're wanting to, to have reason to get more into that, that book that I mentioned by Cornelius Van Damme uh, is helpful with that. Also, Creation and Change by Douglas Kelly has some good sections if you're um, trying to work through any of those different views. All right, let's actually get into the, the passage now and we're going to look at this and we're going to see that uh, God in this, God works six days to form and to fill his creation. So we get into this. God worked uh, six days, and we see him forming and, and filming his creation. In a different message, we already talked about Genesis 1, 1 a little bit, and the, the initial creation of everything, and we're going to look at that. Uh, but you think, again, back there was a time where nothing existed except for God, and this whole world was an idea in God's head. And it was one of the things that he knew he could create this world, and it blows my mind to think of the detail that he would have known about. Because it's not just, we picture it as, okay, there's a planet here and a planet there. And maybe we blow our minds thinking of all the planets and all the stars. But then you realize the complexity, even the people in this room. And if you analyze just yourself and how you know, you, the you know, muscles and the functions of your body work, if you get down to the cellular level and you realize it's not just a glob of uh, protoplasm, but it's basically the complexity of a small city inside every one of your cells. It's amazing. And it was a few weeks ago, I was visiting uh, someone at the, from, the, from our church family at their workplace. And as I was there, there was uh, someone that was working on some uh, schematics. And it was for a 10-story hospital building. And I looked at this and I just marveled at this because on this computer it had all these schematics of where all the ductwork goes and all the electricity and all of this. And it was all being planned out in advance. And it, it just blew my mind just how much complexity goes into building just a, a, a building, a 10-story hospital building. And you compare that with our whole world and our whole creation and how much was in the mind of God we created and brought this into existence and formed it together as he created so, we'll read this, Genesis uh, 1, 1, 2, we'll read again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face 
of the waters. So before we even see where it starts talking about uh, let there be light and um, day one, we have this, this initial creation that happened. And so just a reminder that there is a beginning of everything. The earth and the universe does not go back on forever. There's a definite beginning. God created uh, kind of everything. And I think the best way to understand this is that at the very beginning of things, uh, when God brought this into existence, uh, this is talking about God creating the initial, the matter, the initial stuff that he was going to use and then shape and form together. And by the way, if you're wondering the question, uh, Augustine uh, once wrote about this. He said, you know, people ask, what was God doing before he created the heavens and the earth? And he gave the answer, he was creating hell for people that asked that question. <laughs> He's saying that tongue-in-cheek, but you know, we don't know, and I think it doesn't even make sense to say what he was doing before, because actually time just kind of began itself when he created and got things going with this initial creation. Uh, but the initial creation was, it says here, was, was formless and void. It was like unformed matter. In Hebrew, it uses the phrase tohu wobohu, which sounds fun to say, tohu wobohu, which means formless and void. And so we see that it's without form and it's, it's empty. And we're going to see as God goes through this, he starts giving form to it so it's no longer formless. And he's going to be filling it so it's no longer void and empty. But it seems like right away at the beginning is when he makes all the stuff, but then it's going to be, so it's like taking the, the clay or something, here it is, but now I've got I to form it and put it in order. Got to separate, make the distinctions and start doing things. Or, you know, if you're a kid, you know, he's like dumping out all the Legos onto the table and okay, now i got these, now we can start building, now we can start putting things into place. So the initial creation, this is creation out of nothing, uh, but I think for the most part at least, after this, it's taking the, the original stuff and making things kind of out of it, forming and shaping what he had made. By the way, there's no indication that this, you know, being formless uh, and void uh, was evil. It is not, there's no indication here that it's a result of any type of uh, punishment. It's just undeveloped. It's in process. It's just getting started. We also see from here that um, it gives you a frame of perspective, too, because it talks about the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, don't think of, like, the ocean in a beautiful day. You probably couldn't see the water. The water and everything was all mixed around and uh, probably, you know, very opaque and, you know, just everything was a jumble and, you know, who knows uh, what level of uh, chaos this was. But basically, the form of perspective is from the surface of the earth that's where things, as we look and see how things appear. It, so don't picture this like you're way out in space, you know, looking at the planet Earth. This is going to be from how it appears from, from the surface of the Earth. And also notice it talks about the Spirit of God. It's important to realize too. I mean, we know that um, as, as the creed said, I believe in God the Father, almighty uh, maker of heaven and earth. And God the Father, yes, involved in creation. He's the creator. But, it, but it's not as if... Uh, God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, you know, just sat back and said, well, that's your thing, Father. You do that. They were all involved in this together. And there are passages that talk about Jesus Christ being involved, God the Father creating through the Son. And here we see the Holy Spirit being involved in well, as well. So the things that God does in this, he does together as a trinity 
working together in this. All right, so now we move on to the first, at least, official day. We're going to read Genesis 1, 3 through 5. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. All right, so we see here it's going to um, have these days. It's going to have them kind of ordered. And first thing we notice here is God creates this just by speaking. He, he speaks this into existence. He commands it to appear. He's commanding, there's not even anything there to, uh, but he, he creates it just by speaking. It shows his, his power and his force and that he can do this. Now when he's speaking, it's, uh, we don't want to make this overly literal. God does not have vocal cords. But somehow he's communicating, he's willing this to happen. It's by his, his command that the world comes into existence and then takes its shape and its form. So he's communicating just his omnipotence that he can just command and it happens. And it has to happen. There was no option you know, light didn't say, I don't want to. I don't know if I want to come around. No, it, he calls and it happens. Now here's a question. What was this light? And I'm going to tell you there's some things in this that I don't have exact answers. And I'm not going to pretend that I know exactly everything. You know, you think of how complex uh, just everything in this world, you know, is, even the smallest thing. And basically we have, you know, one sheet of paper here that's giving us the summary version of this. And so there's, we know not to believe anything that contradicts this, but there's other things that God just hasn't revealed to us. But there's some options here, this light. And spoiler alert, but to let you know, God doesn't actually, uh, we don't see the sun and the moon and the stars until day four. So that makes it, well, wait a second, what's going on here? So one option is that the light is from God from God itself, and um, I think even uh, Henry Morris had speculated with this view. I don't know about that. I can't say it's wrong, but the thing that I think that doesn't quite ring accurate for me on that is uh, the rest of creation seems to be separate from God, and so would this be separate enough from him? Now, in the book of Revelation, at the end, it does talk about there's no uh, sun anymore, and God himself provides the light, so it's possible. I just, I just don't know. Was there a temporary source uh, that was placed up there in, in place of the sun? And so that it wasn't the sun itself, but there was something there that was giving light. And so you would have still, you know, part of the earth that would be in, in daylight, part of it that would be a night. I mean, that's definitely another possibility. Um, and a lot uh, would say that's definitely what happened. Um, I mean, a question I have with that is why would day one be about something that's temporary and something that doesn't last beyond this, but I just, I don't know. I'll give you some more theories when we get to day four, um, but I think there's certain things we have to leave is, uh, some, with some, some humble question marks, realizing there's a few different ways that God could have done it. Uh, we know he did it, but how exactly and how this worked, sometimes we don't know exactly. I also wonder, too, was this all of the electromagnetic forces in general that he called into existence and uh, everything that seems like that could make sense as well? One thing we do know is that it was good. 
because God says this. And we're going to see this repeated as God keeps uh, creating. He creates and he steps back, so to speak, he looks at it. There's quality control happening. He says, this is good. God saw that the light was good. We see it says God separated the light from the darkness. And so when we go through, especially these first three days of creation, we're going to notice the theme of, it's of separation. He's forming. He's separating one thing from another. Everything is not jumbled together or meant to be jumbled together. There are proper distinctions that he's making as he's pulling together uh, the light from the darkness and calling the light day and the darkness that he calls night. And so here, this use of day, this means, well, wherever the light is. So if it is, there's a, um, a, a, a source that's out there, it would be the, the part of uh, the, the globe that is receiving the daylight and the other we call night. Or if it's something else, it's, at least it's wherever the light is, that's day, and wherever the, um, there is darkness, that is night. And I say that too because another question mark is it's day four is when he gives the, um, the sun and the moon for the marking of time. So there's still some question marks exactly how this might work. Um, but here again, we see God bringing order out of chaos or, or bringing you know, light into to this world. Now here's another question. Was the initial creation included in day one? That's another question. I'll let, some of these I'm not going to give you an answer. I'll let you kind of think through this. Uh, but here's the question. The initial, when God created everything, does that count as far as day one? Now, in a different message, next week we're going to talk about evolution. And in a different message, we'll talk about different theories in the age of the earth. And I'll talk about the gap theory. Uh, and so there's some that put a big, long time difference between the initial creation and then day one. Uh, but you wouldn't even have to have that. It could be like immediately right, right before the official day one. So it could be. Um, on one hand, that seems maybe that could be what happens because it seems set off from light in day one. Uh, but something else that, um, as I was studying this, that I thought, you know what? This uh, has some weight to me. Okay, without looking at your Bibles right now, when it says, and it talks about... Um, that there was morning and evening the first day. Does it say that there was morning and evening or does it say there was evening and morning? Which one comes first without looking at your Bible? If you had to, uh, I know you're not a betting person, uh, but if you had to bet your house, would you be certain which order it is? Okay, now look at your Bible. Yeah, it actually is evening that's coming first. And the Hebrew way of thinking, the, the evening, the actually the darkness was the first part of the day and the light was the, the other part, which is a little bit different than the way we're thinking of it. Um, although even for us, midnight, you know, it does start the, the new day. But in their way of thinking, it's different. We would think morning and then evening, but it actually says evening and morning. So the day actually starts in darkness. And so that leads me to think um, there really could be something to say all of this was included in the first day that the, the, the initial creating where everything was formless and void and in darkness, that that was the dark half of the day that comes first. And then God brings uh, the day. He brings the light. And that is the second half of things. So light was the first act of, of separating or forming out of chaos. Day two, creation of the, the sky. Let's read verses six through eight. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. 
and let it separate the water from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. can also be translated as a sky here. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. So here we see God continue his work of forming and, and separating. So before, I think if you were on the earth, you couldn't even see anything because I think everything was an opaque, soupy mess in the atmosphere and uh, things jumbled together. But now he creates a separation. So below it, you have waters below and that's the sea or the ocean. So now it would just like, look like water world out there. But you would have, uh, you know, now finally, you know, transparent, um, you know, atmosphere that you would have. So he's creating the sky. It talks about the waters above too. And I think, I'll just say, I think the most natural explanation for that, he's talking about the clouds. He's talking about the clouds that are up there. Um, There are different theories. And I know one that, I don't know how popular it is now, uh, but there was a canopy theory that there was this gigantic water canopy, at least of water or water vapor, and that that was up there and that um, until the flood and that came down and provided for the flood. It seems that people are moving away from that and that it's more natural that it's just talking about the clouds. Maybe it was very thick clouds at the time, uh, but, you know, clouds. Uh, But someone pointed out that, you know, for this to, it's one thing to say during the creation week, you know, God is using his, um, you know, creative power to do things that are kind of, you know, off-label or different. But after that, you know, he tends to set it up in a way that, you know, nature is going to function as it needs to. And... It would be hard to picture this without it creating a massive greenhouse effect that would just, you know, wipe out everyone. And how would you maintain the canopy up there? And uh, I think there's other ways to account for the global flood uh, than just that. So, again, who knows for sure? But I think it's more natural that the, the waters above are basically referring to the clouds. So he's thinning out the atmosphere. He's separating it in this way. Uh, it's not like the Enuma Elish. He didn't cut in half Tiamat and use, you know, half of a body. But this is God taking the original creation that he made and he's forming this. So that is day two. There's evening and morning the second day. On to day three. Dry land, seas, and plant life. Starting with verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So we got one thing here, he says it's good, but he doesn't stop here. It's a, it, wait, there's more. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. So again, God is forming, he's developing uh, this world, and so now he's separating. So you have a surface here where some of it is water and some of it is land. Uh, so it's not just the uh, ocean or a, a giant kind of swampy mess. And now we can actually bring forth uh, plant life too and vegetation. So we see this happening. In Psalm 104, 
which talks about creation. It uh, talks about some of this in, in more poetic terminology. Starting with verse 5, He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took f- to flight. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. So imagine what this would be like to see this happening. I mean, there would have to be all kinds of you know, plate tectonics and upheavals you know, that are happening during this time you know, as things are, are moving around to allow for the dry land and this separation with the seas uh, to happen. Um, you know, I think if we were actually there to picture this, I think it would be just more majestic and, and probably complicated than sometimes we think in the simplistic versions you know, that we are, are used to thinking about this. You see the vegetation arise as well too at this point. Uh, there's different types, different kinds. That's the phrase that the scripture uses. Scripture doesn't use uh, the exact terminology that we use today with species and you know, family genus species and all this. Um, use the phrase kind, which might loosely be interpreted as something at the level we would understand as family, but not exactly. But we see God creates each one. He doesn't create one and then let it uh, turn into all the different uh, types of, of, of plants. And the same with the animals. He creates each kind. It's not one and then lets it evolve or develop. I said we'll talk more about evolution next week and see, should you believe in that, uh, both biblically and scientifically? Uh, but we see here, um, it's saying bearing seeds, each according to its own kind. And see this principle of reproduction happening where whatever uh, kind that it is reproduces according to its kind, with each type originally created by God. All right, so we have here the first three. Uh, and the first three days, again, you have this theme of kind of forming. The earth was formless. And now God is, is forming it. And he's, he's separating, he's distinguishing uh, the different parts. Uh, but now he's going to start, that's more of the work of, of filling it. Now that the, uh, the stage is prepared, putting things on the stage. And we're going to notice there are some parallels as we see 4, 5, and 6. I think not enough to say that all God was doing here was you know, some kind of framework. Um, but I think instead, it's like, to a large degree, this is what made sense. Uh, although day four is another one that has us kind of scratching our heads a little bit and saying exactly how does this work. Because on day four, it talks about the sun and the moon and the stars. So let's read that. Verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. So here God creates uh, 
these uh, stars filling this. Um, you see the parallelism, the light, and then you see the, the light bearers or the, the light givers that are, that are made, sun and the moon. So by the way, which is more important, the sun or the moon? The moon, obviously. I mean, the sun shines during the day when there's light anyways. Okay. <laughs> you see this filling... Okay, so one thing we can get from this is that, yeah, the sun and the moon and the stars, they are not gods. Uh, they are creation. So that is going against the different beliefs of the different pagan religions. You know, you don't see anything here about worshiping the, the S-U-N in the sky or the moon. Uh, you know, the Greeks and Romans would name all their, you know, the, planet, the planets after, you know, their different gods. You don't see that. They are just mere creations. And even the stars, they barely get a mention. You know, two words, oh yeah, and the stars. Almost like he even forgot to mention them, like it's, it's just no big deal at all. I think too, we need, this is where we need to remember also that this is being written in the language of a common observation from somebody on the surface of the earth. Because some people might point to this and say, oh, you see your Bible's full of errors here because there really are not two great lights in the sky because the moon does not actually give light. It is just a reflector. And so, yeah, okay, we, we get that, we know. It's, a, it's reflecting the light of the sun. Uh, but the point is that from somebody observing this in, uh, from the perspective of the earth, um, you have two lights that are in the sky and they are giving light, one during the day and the other by night. And so there's nothing here that would go against inerrancy or the, making the Bible that's not uh, truthful just because it says that the moon is, is a light. Uh, this would be, again, just the language of common observation. So again, back to the $100,000 question that you're probably thinking at some level, how could this all work? Okay, how could there be the earth without the, without the sun and uh, there's the moon and we know the stars and all this and everything is, is fitted together and there's gravity and orbits and all this and how could this actually happen? And again, this is where we have to say with humility as well that there's certain things that are way beyond our pay grade. There's certain things that God just has not revealed to us exactly how this works. Let me give you a few theoretical options. I mean, one would be that, yeah, the sun, the moon, and the stars were created from scratch on day four, and before that, God, just by his power, held things in place temporarily. And that could be just how it is. Or maybe there's something that was, I don't know, we build buildings you know, today, and there's scaffolding, there's temporary structures that are needed, um, and maybe God didn't mention this. There's probably all kinds of details that aren't mentioned that don't contradict scripture. Uh, so... It, we just, we don't know. So that could be an option. Um, let me give you another option. I'm not saying I know this is right. It's a theoretical possibility. Um, but another possibility is that maybe the sun and the moon and the stars were created uh, by God in the beginning, uh, but you couldn't actually see them. They weren't revealed until day four. That's as things are being so separated, there was the waters above, thick clouds, and possibly, according to this view, it wasn't until day four that the sky went from uh, being, um, you know, translucent, you could still see light, 
but where you could actually clear it enough where you could see the sun and the moon and the stars. Now, I first heard that argument from uh, people that held to an old Earth perspective, uh, but I realized you, know, you could have that work from a young Earth perspective too, theoretically. So again, I don't know that that's the case. I'm just giving possibilities. Uh, something to consider too is the word here for made uh, is a word that is pretty broad in meaning. It means to accomplish or to do. And with all of this, you know, uh, God, he is creating stuff from nothing right at the beginning, but after this, he's shaping things around. Uh, it's not necessarily, you know, bringing things into existence from scratch. Um, but you have some problems either way. That would mean that God didn't actually make anything new on day four. It just um, appeared or, of course, the other problem would be that God didn't make anything permanent on day one. So, so some question marks. There was maybe a third possibility. You know, we talk about everything, I think, being, um, at least the raw material, being brought into existence in an unshaped form uh, at the very beginning. So maybe these objects existed out there, but in an unshaped form in the same way the stuff on the earth existed in an unshaped form, but it wasn't until day four that God actually made them into what they are now. And maybe it was some kind of a, a nebula or something, and maybe that was the light source in day one. Again, so much of this is speculation. Uh, so much of this, I don't know. We don't want to believe anything that contradicts Scripture, but we also recognize there's certain things that um, God is not giving us all the details about this, and it'll be really neat to find out one day exactly how all this works. But they're given to rule, to govern day and night, for keeping time, not for astrology, uh, but for setting. So we know just the, the, the length of a day and the, by the moon, the length of a month, uh, um, you know, sailors can use the uh, stars to, to position. Uh, they, don't, they didn't have GPS back then. Uh, they used the stars for that and to, to give light. Um, and again, I just love how the stars are just thrown in there. Just uh, like God almost forgot, like no big deal to him. Then, moving on, day five, we're seeing more come into existence here. We see sea creatures and flying creatures. Let's read verses 20 through uh, 23. God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. So God creates all these different, uh, the sea creatures, he creates flying creatures uh, as well. Picture in the background, it's a bunch of uh, ducks here. Um, I have a friend of mine, uh, his, his name is Adam Jackson, and he's a pastor in Green Bay, and we go way back. We went to high school. We were best. I was. We went to Moody together. He was the. Uh, uh, I was the best man in his wedding. He was in my wedding. He was best man after my brother. He got into photography like a few years back, and he's been just taking these crazy, amazing pictures. And I just want to show you some of my friends' pictures here. They're just so cool. He he took this picture with the all these ducks. Um, some of these are just fantastic. 
And I just bring these up because, you know, God creates these, uh, these sea creatures, uh, these flying creatures. He loves taking pictures of eagles. He has some sweet eagle pictures. If you look up Adam Jackson Photography on Facebook, follow it. It's worth following. Apparently a bunch of eagles are on Green Bay. So um, avoid football metaphors at this point. So that one's got some lunch. That guy too. Look in there. He's got a lot of lunch. <laughs> Look at that face. So the Lord is filling now the, he's created the sea, he's created the sky, and uh, now he's filling it. The word here that's used for create, this is the more specific word, bara. This is a word that is used in scripture only with God doing this type of creation. And so I think it just indicates that this is something that um, uh, God is creating something new. He's creating this, uh, this new type of animal life that he's bringing into existence. It's the first occurrence of the Hebrew word nefesh uh, for this type of life. Um, and again, creating each according to their kinds. They're to reproduce according to their kinds. And finally, we get to day six, the last work day of the creation week. And here at the end, we see God creating the land animals and humans. We're going to read through this. We'll be talking more about some of the specifics in this, especially with the creation of Adam and Eve in uh, weeks to come. But let's finish up reading this chapter. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kind and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Again, he's creating each one individually. He's not creating it and having it evolve from one to the other. And then you get to finally the, the crowning work, the the, the crowning achievement of all this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Man was to have dominion over all these other things that God had already created, created for humanity. So God created man in his own image. This is the only part here that is uh, kind of poetic, not to take away from it being uh, literal, but to just show the, the importance of this, to stress it, to underline it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath, that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good and there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. God creates these, these land animals. 
just all the different uh, land animals and their variety. And we see it going from uh, the lower to, you know, kind of the higher. So I have to assume, you know, God created the, the dogs and said, I can do better, and then created cats. Uh, <laughs> but at the end, he creates human beings, his crowning achievement, and then he finally says, very good. And after this, rest. The seventh day is the day of rest. When did God create the angels? We don't know. Another question. Uh, they seem to be around from the beginning. Job 38 says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? And then it says, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. It seemed that they were around, but we don't know. Was this probably day one? Or if there was a slightly before? Or are they considered another timeline, another realm? Um, you know, they're not the focus of the book of Genesis, so it, it doesn't mention them. We know that they're, they're there, but just one of those questions, we just don't have a solid answer on that. Let me leave you with a few quick applications from all of this. And again, all these pictures, these are taken by my friend Adam. God can create with his word, we can't. God can create just with a command, with a word, we can't do that. And I have to say that because there's false teaching out there called the word faith movement that tells you that you can be like God in this way and you speak and you can bring things into existence. Speak it, name it, claim it. And this is false teaching. This is not what God is saying. This is confusing and making us way more like God than we are intended to be. And we're going to see when we get into Genesis 3 that one of the things that the devil did is try to uh, make us overstep the amount that we are to be like God, to claim for things that, uh, that he does that we cannot do. Um, you know, we can, we can rearrange, we can do different things, but we cannot create just by speaking things into existence. That comes from the New Age. That is not what the Bible teaches, but it is rampant. There are churches all across America and across the globe that teach that and stay away from that. Uh, that is, uh, God can do miracles, he can do things, but we cannot just create things by our speaking things into existence. So you've got to watch out for that. Second, God is a creator and a worker. We see this. This is God. It is God's work week. He worked for six days, and then we see he rested. Not that he was tired, but he was, he was done working. He was bringing order out of chaos. He created initially. We can't bring things ex nihilo, you know, but there is a way that I think we are wired in our callings to, in this world, to also try to bring order out of chaos, to bring things into existence. And whether it's part of the being fruitful and multiply, uh, whether it's part of uh, you know, working this world, in, improving it, having dominion, uh, that we are meant to be stewards of this world and work, we're going to see, is a good thing. That is before the fall. And God created us to, uh, to improve the things that are around us. God created this world and he did a lot of it, okay, going from uh, chaos to order. But he, he didn't, and the next day, make cities and make technology and all the and roads. There's a lot he left for people to do and to continue to develop. And so that's part of, I think we're wired by God to continue work that he had done. And so there's that part of you, for us to just sit back and just take it easy, that's, that's not the way that we are created. God's creation, again, it shows the design of his creation, show his power and his wisdom and we need to give God glory for that and thanks so we can trust him because of uh, his power and wisdom. And God did good work. Each 
time along the way every day, it is good. He says it at least once. And at the end, it is very good. And this is going to remind us that the reason that we look out in this world and we see things that are not very good is because something has happened. That the world we live in now is not the way that it originally came off the assembly line. It has fallen. It is, it is, it is crashed. It is, uh, something has, uh, has messed it up. And we're going to see that that's what the fall is, sin coming into this world and also being, affecting each of our lives. And that's the reason that Jesus came to undo this damage of sin, to restore your relationship with God. And Jesus Christ is the only one that could repair you know, that damage, that separation. And he did it by the God-man dying on the cross in your place. So I hope that you will trust him and that you will place your confidence in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior so that you can be reconciled to this God who made everything. And this God, we see, he brings order out of chaos and he fills that which is empty. And he did this in this world and he can do that in your life too. You take a look at your life and you think, my life is chaos, my life is empty, and without God, yeah, that's how it is. But if you will let God into your life, if you will trust Jesus Christ, if you will come to him, he will begin that work. He will make you a new creation that comes when we're born again, when we trust him. And he will bring order out of the chaos in your life and he will fill it with meaning, purpose, and hope and with himself too. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord God. You are a great creator. And we thank you for your wisdom, your power on display, Lord God. And we thank you and stand in amazement that a God that could do all this would also care and love us enough to die on the cross in our place. So Lord, we give ourselves to you, we surrender ourselves to you, we trust in you. Let us live for your glory. This world is a theater of your glory, not ours. May everything point to you. May we love you with our entire lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.